Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in this episode? Hold on to your hats, because in this episode, we're first going to learn about the problematic use of heroification in K-12 curriculum. We're going to learn about a couple shiros you should know. And then I'm going to teach everybody that you can include women in a lesson on D-Day. Yeah, D-Day, an event women literally weren't allowed to go to. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode three. Um, wait, Kira, um, before we get into it, I have a little announcement, and I usually don't get to do all the talking, so... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nervous. Time out. <laughs> I need to talk to you about um, Dick. <laughs> what? Uh, more specifically, the Richard uh, Guild Learman Award. Oh my god. <laughs> I recently found out that our very own Kelsey is named the State History Teacher of the Year oh, okay. for the state of New Hampshire. <laughs> And it's pretty kick-ass. They only pick one teacher from every state throughout the country. So 50 states, one history teacher that does American history from elementary school, middle, and high school. And she was selected. In- that is accurate. Um, um, but, yeah. I so, Richard. that we were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have and to you, do some you bragging. you prefaced with, let's talk about Dick. Well, yeah. So, this, okay. it's kind of the historical fact behind this award was pretty cool. This guy, Richard Gilder. Um, is the co-founder and co-chair of the Institute since the beginning of 1994. Is, he goes by Dick. <laughs> Dick partnered with his dear friend, Louis Learman, to elevate and enrich the teaching and learning of American history on a national scale, yeah. starting with one teacher seminar. And then the donation of over 60,000 item collection of historical documents he and Lou had built Dick led the way to the Institute and grew over 25 years to create a network of over 2,600 affiliate schools and programs across all 50 states that are now, they support over 50,000 teachers, which yeah. is really cool. The Gilder Lerman website is one of the coolest websites out there for teacher resources. They have um, all these essays written by historians that oh, cool. are at like a high school reading level. Um, so that is like unbelievable they also have like you said all those documents um they have so many primary sources with like question you know engaging questions that kids could think about when they're looking at the primary sources and then for ap u.s history teachers they have all these videos on on ap u.s history that are really helpful so it's a really cool organization i know as i'm like i found this out i'm like It's super honorable. I mean, you should be because it's just such a big deal and there's so many like amazing teachers on this list. The other thing that I saw that was really cool I just want to mention is that um, Dick rejoiced at the flow of immigrants into America Hmm. and did everything he could to encourage it because of his passionate belief that our country was based on a set of ideals anyone from any background could embrace and make their own. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, so cool. Um, and no, it's, it's amazing and it's a really, it is, a, it is really special to be recognized by them. So well, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I can't believe I'm saying it 
a teacher of the year. Like, you're so impressive, and I'm, like, very humbled to be your friend. Oh so, my God. congratulations. I'm so grateful to have you as my friend. Oh, so God. We're not you. hugging anyone, I'm just okay. wondering, but yeah, cool. we are going to get into this. Okay. <laughs> Can we start now? Or Yeah, yeah. go for it. Okay. I'm here, to, I'm here to learn now, now that I know that you're the teacher of the year. <laughs> All right. Episode three, Heroes and Sheroes. So... Women are excluded from the record because of something that James Lowen's, Lowen, uh, who wrote a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, and it's a great read if anybody hasn't okay. read it. Um, he calls it's it... a very provocative title. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, yep. Uh, a lot of the... His focus in the book was about whitewashing of oh. American history. Wow. And um, one of the most compelling chapters in his book is about... Um, Thanksgiving and how wow, we sort yeah. of like are like oh look at this we all sat peacefully and had you know turkey with the, the natives and like meanwhile what's really going on is we're like massacring natives and yeah you know by I forget like it's like 17 something no Native Americans exist in New England and um, they he also talks about how we try to emphasize the um, Massachusetts narrative over the Virginia narrative, which oh actually preceded Massachusetts because the Virginia narrative is infinitely worse. The um, Jamestown settlers um, invited a whole group of Native Americans to come to dinner and um, poisoned the entire tribe at, um, the, at the dinner. That's horrible. It's hor- It's horrifying. And so, anyway, his book is amazing. You should absolutely So wait, it. so I'll pause you. So recently I t- attended this incredible webinar about unconscious bias and um, some training that I do for work. Um, and they had us all look up what land we were on um, for your Native American culture and yeah. like what... Like whose land Whose land is. we were actually yeah. on. And so instead of saying what state you were from, you actually said what land you're on. And it was so powerful. And it, it's this awesome map. What land are we on? Um, we are on Pemigewasset. Yeah. Which makes sense. Makes where sense. Where the we're river on the is. But there was actually like several overlapping tribes because of the area that we're in. Yeah. So you could get even more granular to like what tribe is right in your in your town, and if not even on like your home and your property, uh-huh. which was pretty cool. So um, I'll tag that in somewhere in our story so yeah, people can look amazing. up where their land is from it's really cool that's amazing um so we're not going to be focusing on native americans today even though it's obviously a really compelling topic mm. the problem <laughs> so we're going to talk about the problem which is heroification and what he talks about is okay we take the pilgrims and we put them up on this pedestal and um and we make it so that we can't really look at the reality of the pilgrims, the reality of um, the history that's there, yeah. um, because we're trying to make sort of this like almost religious canon of people to honor and recognize yeah, in and our history. Like forbidden to tear down. Yeah, you can't you can't tear them down. And like, don't touch Christopher Christopher Columbus. Like. Right, right. Like he's the he's this hero, and and it's hard because that's not like. All of us are flawed creatures. Yeah. And we make mistakes and we say dumb stuff. And <laughs> I mean, you never, me, always. always. <laughs> me, me, always. Not you, always. Me, always. Um, so so we, we don't, like, by doing that, we're not being honest with ourselves about humanity and, yeah. and about the, our humanness. And so... Um, I want to talk today um, about this this problem and how 
heroification broadly excludes women. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Are oh, you ready? Always. I okay. hate pop quizzes. But you are a Connecticut it. girl. Mm. Okay. True to true to your New England roots. I'm a nutmegger. Um, yep. Yeah. Let's bring it on. Can you please tell everybody a short synopsis of The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere? Oh, yes. Okay. So, short synopsis, the British are coming. The British are coming. Yeah, Geico <laughs> did this very well, so I'm sure you can nail it. <laughs> and Paul Revere uh, rides to tell all the towns that they are coming and alerts them. Yep, he's riding through, it's nighttime, there's a, <laughs> there's a small lantern, and he's screaming into the top he's of his screaming. lungs. That the British are coming and alerts everyone to wake up so they can get prepared, get their militia ready, and be able to fight against the the British. Against the British. And he rode for, like, a while. A while. Yeah. Very brave. Very brave. At night. Yeah. Yep. A younger man. Yep. During tough times when the British are occupying his land. Yeah. And he's a hero. An American hero. I mean, there's many a song. Many a song. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's called The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. I mean. Right? Yeah. So, Paul Revere's a hero, no? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, he saved America from the <laughs> British, right? And, okay, so, yes, all of those things are true-ish, um, except that they rarely mention in those stories that Paul Revere got captured, and so he kind of failed in his mission, in yeah. that he, like, alerted some of the towns, but he wasn't able to complete his mission because he's captured by the British. So maybe he was yelling a little too loud. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> One of those. <laughs> Keep it down, Paul. Okay. So I want to introduce everybody to a woman named Sybil Luddington because she does a really she's a really great case in point of the problem of heroification. Okay. So um, I if I if you would add, I read about Sybil um, a few years ago, but prior to that I would have said exactly what you said, which is you know Paul Revere did it. He's the hero. He did everything yeah. on his own, and that's just not accurate. So, um, he takes off towards Lexington, Massachusetts, and, um, he is accompanied by a whole bunch of other people who are also riding in other directions to other towns to alert them. Do we know who dispatches them? I don't, actually. Okay. Um, I but, don't. But, but there's lots of They all just people. get on their horses and they're like, let's ride! We gotta go! <laughs> oh, we're off! And, um, the... So, first of all, the problem with the story is Paul Revere is not alone. Yeah. He's not doing It does make it seem like he's the only one doing anything. Right. And he made it to over, like, way too many towns. Yeah. Like, he did it all. (laughs) He saved so many people. He saved so many people. So, Sybil was 16 years old, and she's the oldest daughter of a local colonel. And so, she takes off with all these guys. I'm sorry. Like, what were you doing when you were 16? I'm yeah, not, not that. I'm not helping my colonel father. <laughs> right? Like, yo. Yeah, I'm young. So, she's Wait, exceptional. you know old Paul Revere is? Not I don't. I think he's... I want to say... I have no idea. He must I, be older. I should know that, but I don't. I'm going to Google it. See, look, we're all flawed. I'm a history teacher. Just, you know? <laughs> okay? Own it. Own uh, it. I'm owning it. So, um, so, Sybil rides 40 miles, which is twice the distance that Paul Revere goes. Okay? I'm sorry. Twice? Twice the distance. Um, so, the midnight ride of Paul Revere? Like, no. The midnight ride of many militia people who take off and yeah. and save the day and also go further than him. Um, so, this is a really misleading title from the start. 
Um, following the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which a lot of people refer to as the shots that um, could be heard around the world, right? The, the yeah. beginning of the American Revolution. General George Washington personally thanks Sybil for her service and her bravery. Um, thank you, Sybil. Thank you, Sybil. The recognition. All right, side note. Yeah. Paul Revere is 41. 41. When he wrote. Just like, (laughs) I'm sorry. Can we talk about the 16-year-olds? Yeah. What the heck? Right? So, so she's so cool. So this is an incredibly courageous feat, and I nobody talks about Sybil Ludington, and what a cool story for our high school students yeah. to learn about, right? Here's somebody your age it, yep. who did something incredibly significant, so much so that the first yeah, president, like true of, future president yep. of the United States, you know, thanks you. Um, so here's a good example of we took the male hero, we put him on a pedestal, and we didn't tell the whole story. Here's another hashtag bad, bad history. It's not real. <laughs> it's not honest. And, um, and it doesn't recognize the women that are, that are part of it. Um, so there's also this other piece that is really interesting about heroification, um, which is that women often play a really big role in creating these heroes. Um, do tell uh, yeah so a couple like random examples so all the confederate statues that are really um, problematic right now most of them were um, fundraised for and put up by the daughters of the confederacy which is basically this organization of women I mean I'm part of the DAR which is like the daughters of the American Revolution and they put up those kind of statues too and it's definitely like we're having a lot of conversations right now of like should we be supporting these? Should we be taking them down? Yeah. It's valid. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know you were part of that. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. I went to Cotillion. It's another story for another day. But. Dang. Yeah, man. D-A-R. <laughs> More big time. <laughs> it's me and my 80-year-old sisters. Oh, my gosh. So, um, so the, you know, here those are both examples of, you know, women being part of creating, like, literally putting statues on pedestals to honor men from the past. Yeah. And um, and it's it's interesting that women are sort of a part of the, the pro- their own, like, creating the own, their own problem. Yeah. Um, there's also, I think about Jacqueline Kennedy, who, after the Kennedy assassination, um, spent a, the, a good portion of the rest of her career like harnessing and crafting JFK's legacy to yeah. re, you know to make sure that people remember him as the civil rights icon and it's almost like the way that women show their patriotism and their value is by building up someone else because they don't want the spotlight or the gratitude it's like no I'm going to do this thing for someone else yep. and that shows how much I love them and how much I feel about the country and and to be fair like when somebody dies like in both of oh, these yeah. cases right veterans of various wars and, and JFK like those people should be recognized and their Absolutely. legacy should be crafted and should be honored but it's interesting that women are part of the pedestal creating. So another really great example of this is Merle Edvers, um, who okay. is Medgar Evers' wife. Okay. Um, for those of you that don't know about... Yeah, give a Medgar Evers so actually, synopsis. And actually, this kind of cracks me up because I went to the Merle and Medgar Evers Institute website, and, oh. they ha- and she is the president of it. And so I was reading her little bio on her website, and... Her bio says, Merle Evers is perhaps best remembered as the widow of Medgar Evers. And I was just like, oh, that is such a sad 
I feel like you should write a letter to the website. And be like, no, like you are, so she was, she went on to be like president of the NAACP. Um, and it's, um, just, she's incredible and she should, her name should stand on its own. And And not be the missus. Yeah. Yeah. So I did not know about Merle Evers at all. I mean, like I, I I knew that he had a wife because that's part of the story. Um, but I didn't know about her. And um, she is responsible, really, for crafting his legacy. So the brief version of Megar Evers is he civil rights, right? Yeah. So let's back up, though, because he was a World War II veteran. And I learned a lot about him through my research into D-Day, which is going to be the focus of the latter half of our our, um, podcast today. Um, But... He fought on D-Day. He was on the beaches and, um, you know, risked his life for the United States like a lot of African-American men did at the time. That's huge. And um, came home to 1950s America where there's Jim Crow and lynchings and all sorts of things that should not be happening no, to so just American heroes. Gave your life and limb for your country based on liberty and freedom. Yep. And you come in home. segregated units. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then you come home and you're welcomed with open arms and lesser pay and a lesser job and and bigotry and riots and right racism. Cool. So Medgar Evers goes on to um, protest, petition, um, and and you know stage civil rights like movements and causes. He's the first Mississippi um, field secretary. Um, and, he, you know, I, um, think he's just an incredible human, um, with all of those things. His story is incredibly sad because in 1963, the same year that, um, JFK is killed, he, uh, is gunned down in his driveway while his children are watching <gasps> by the KKK. And, um, What is wrong with the people in the world? <laughs> it's horrible. So, um, I think he's amazing. He's buried at Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and I go down there every year with students, and so every year I go, if not with them, by myself to his grave and just, you know, stand there and have a moment because his story is so terrible. Like, that is not how we should... Not not, No no one should be gunned down in their driveway, period, ever. But these are veterans of our country. Like, I just I just can't even fathom Well, to be so patriotic to sign up to fight for your country in a time that they really needed you. Mm-hmm. And you did that despite how you've been treated. In, in, By this country. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty impressive. It's amazing. Um, but so Merle Evers, coming back to the women, um, she waged, and this is also from her website, a painstaking battle... Um, to keep her husband's memory and dreams alive. And she valiantly lobbied to bring his killer to justice. Um, it wasn't until 1994... Stop it. ...that the assassins This were... is, like, so current right now in the current climate that's happening of, like, how people yeah, are let's not... Get, let's get justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Like, oh come my on, gosh. say these people's names and give them justice. We don't need to wait... 30 years that's to bring absurd. an assassin. That's a, that's, a, that's a problem with our legal system. Like, that's a misjustice. It's ridiculous. Like, it should be, that should be immediate. Like, you find out who it is, immediate. They, yeah. Someone gunned down a man in his driveway in front of his children. Whether he's black or white, there should be justice for that. Right. Horrible. Sorry. So, she 
um, you know, spends years um, working to bring the assassin to justice. And um, after a third trial, um, he is finally found guilty of murder. Ugh. Yeah. Um, Good for her for being, you know, so ferocious in in that endeavor. Oh my gosh. She's amazing. Um, but also, you know, it simultaneously, her work is... Um, is building up this legacy, this pedestal mm-hmm. for him. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be recognized and honored, but there are so many, like she is also a part of this story. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know her name. And if it wasn't for her and her work and her efforts and her involvement in the civil rights movement following his murder, mm-hmm. um, maybe this wouldn't have, maybe, you know, the killer would not have been brought to justice. Maybe, um, you know, who, who knows? Yeah. She, she is so incredible, and she should be a part of the narrative at the same time. And she's still with us and doing amazing work. Um, I want to read a little quote from her. She said, Medgar said repeatedly in his speeches, and certainly during the last year of his life, this is the land of my birth. I believe in what's possible for the state of Mississippi. I believe that it will be one of the best places to live in America when we have solved the race problem. I said to him, you are out of your mind. I am a native <laughs> Mississippian. I was born in Vicksburg. Things will never change in Mississippi. You are wasting your time, and I fear for your life. He would look at me with an uncomfortable stare, and he would say, you will see. And she was talking in this interview where she said this about just how much braver and, um, mm-hmm. and whatever he was than her. Um, and that, it sounds like that might be true, right? He has this, like, incredible optimism about Mississippi. Um, it's almost like he had to, to continue the work that he did. Otherwise, it's like, why show up every day if you have no hope that it would change? Right. Absolutely. Um, so, Merle Evers, um, did a lot of work in the civil rights movement, chronicling Medgar Evers' life. Um, she co-wrote For Us, The Living with William Peters, which um, is, a, is a book about, you know, the movement and, okay. and these causes. She penned the autobiography of Medgar Evers, so she literally, like, wrote his story for him. So she's an author in she's her own author. right about a narrative and an yep. incredible story. She um, published personal memoirs, Watch Me Fly, What I Learned on the Way to Becoming the Woman I Was Meant to Be. Um, so she does a lot of great activism, um, that is incredibly important to the civil rights movement of the last few decades. Um, but she also, um, a lot of that work was making sure that Medgar Evers didn't die in vain. And that's such an amazing legacy. And obviously I think he is an incredible person, but I think that, um, I was wrong in my understanding of history to think that. Um, his history wrote itself. It was right. written by his wife. Right. And that's a really important detail to the story that we lose when we put somebody up on a pedestal. So um, we're going to take a short break here mm-hmm. and we're going to be right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by Simply Sunflowers. Simply Sunflowers is a female owned and operated jewelry, accessory, and gift boutique located on Main Street in Plymouth, New Hampshire. It's the perfect place to purchase a gift to celebrate yourself or one of the remarkable women in your life. Check out Simply Sunflowers online at www.simplysunflowersnh.com or follow them on Instagram, Simply Sunflowers NH. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by Explore Plymouth, New Hampshire. Looking for things to do in the greater Plymouth area? Explore Plymouth NH. It is your one-stop guide for all things to do, places to eat, and where to stay. It even has an hour-by-hour event calendar that lets you know what's happening in the area. From live music to workout classes to special events, hop on the site and then go to Explore Plymouth NH. Visit ExplorePlymouthNH.com or follow along on Instagram, Explore Plymouth NH. If you think what we're doing is awesome, consider making a donation to fund our work on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. If you are a teacher and have an idea or lesson that features or is about a woman, and you think it fits in a typical curriculum, or you have something that should be included in class because, hello, women are half of humanity, contact us through our website, www.remedialherstory.com. If you would like to contribute as a guest lecturer, be sure to say that. If you would like to come to a live recording, also contact us through our website, www.remedialherstory.com, and tell us what you hope to gain from the experience. You can also follow us on Instagram, at remedialherstory, or on Twitter, at remedherstory. Welcome back, everybody. All right. Are you just saying welcome back to me? Yeah, to to (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Kelsey. To to the room. Happy to be here. All right, right now, every single teacher can find a woman's voice to include in their next lesson. Yes. And this will be part of the dismantling of heroification. So if you're going to talk about a Medgar Evers, that's awesome. But don't forget to tell the story about how his wife solidified his legacy and brought Mm. his killers to justice. Yes. Because that's badass. So women exist. And you just have to look for them. So to make this, I'm to prove this to you, I'm going to do a case in point. Okay. Are you ready? I'm here for this. D-Day. If you're not familiar with D-Day, I mean, we mentioned it earlier with Medgar Ebers, but D-Day occurred on June 6th, 1944. It was the day the Allies, except for Russia, raided the beaches of Normandy, France, to take it back from the Nazis. It required the coordination of a whole bunch of different nations on the Allied side. You needed to get their intelligence operations, the land forces, sea forces, air forces, all of them collaborating together. It is the largest sea-to-land invasion in world history. Okay. Um, It's a really, really big deal. And although women served during World War II, they were often in non-combat positions, with some exceptions, which we'll talk about in later podcasts, because it's awesome. Um, But... uh, Early in the morning of D-Day, and even 30 days after D-Day, no Allied women were permitted on board the ships. Wow. Okay? Um, Some people were predicting 90% casualties for the men that were storming the beaches, and so I'm sorry. 90%. 90%. Yeah, there was one group of boys. So anyone who signed up? Probably gonna die. Yeah. Um, That didn't turn out to be exactly true, but it... That was what the predictions were. Oh my um, gosh. There was this one group of boys from Bedford, Virginia, that called themselves the Suicide Squad because they were in the first wave. Oh my gosh. So they're not taking any risks the morning of D Day and they're not bringing any women on these ships. Okay, so. Because women are risky. You, ca- you women, can't be on Women both. are risky. They're, you're, you're, periods. You know, they might compromise. Yeah, they might have their period that day and heaven forbid. You can't bring menstruation on boats. Yeah. No place for a woman. 
Okay. Maybe don't start with periods. So how, Brooke, <laughs> could you possibly incorporate women into a lesson on a male yeah, only Yeah, give event? it to me. I mean, where are the women if they're not allowed in these boats? Well, you find them. Okay. So we're going to start with a woman named Martha Gellhorn. Have you heard of her? Obviously not. Okay. So she is, like Merle Edvers, sadly most often noted for her short uh, marriage to Ernest Hemingway. Heard of him? Yes. Always. Well, for, <laughs> former English majors, we hear about those dudes. You hear about them. Okay, fair enough. So um, both of these people, Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn, are obviously well-established journalists and writers. Okay. okay. And the morning of D-Day, she really wanted to go, along with all the other male journalists, um, in subsequent waves. Um, the journalists weren't in the first wave, but they, okay. went, they went after. Um, probably safer. Probably safer. Um, <laughs> Not and, so helpful. But they still went on D-Day. So on June 6th, they were still going. And um, she wanted to go and be among all the journalists that are going because right. that's it, her job. It's the biggest story. Right? And she so wants to cover it. She is denied this because she's a female journalist. So she's class B of journalists. And so she writes a letter and she says, It is necessary that I report on this war. I do not feel like there is any need to beg as a favor for the right to serve as the eyes for millions of people in America who are desperately in need of seeing but cannot see for themselves. And, of course, she was denied. So, Hemingway... Like, yeah, that is a powerful letter. Powerful. And she's coming, she's, like, bringing the heat, she's a strong writer. Yep. She's making a strong case. Yeah, Not, why do I have to beg you to... Why does to, being a woman bar me from being a great writer? Right, like, you're sending all these other journalists who that are maybe not are qualified. Like, yeah, or, like, exactly, like... <laughs> Okay, like I, I'm the I'm the writer. You know, it's like this is me, and I'm the writer, and I need to go and cover the story. But you're gonna send like intern Andy to yeah. go, right? So it's not intern Andy. Her strange husband Hemingway oh. takes her spot. Of course he does. Of course he does. I mean, he move is move aside, ex wife. Yeah, move aside. <laughs> so, um, so he doesn't even work for a magazine at this point in his career. Oh, unemployed writer. Un- an unemployed writer gets her spot. So, the morning of the invasion, she gets, and this is early morning, like, dark, like, before, Yeah, they went in before dawn. Yeah. She gets on a ship on the pretense of interviewing some nurses, and she stows away in a bathroom. Bad ass. Yeah, she's awesome. After, sort of, the initial assault happens, and I should mention that at this point, 9,000 people are dead on the beaches. Yeah, nine thousand Allied soldiers. So that doesn't even include all the Germans and yeah, on captured Poles okay. and people that, yeah. that are, could be dead on the other side. So um, it's also important to note that um, as she sort of comes out of hiding, um, she's one of the first journalists to be there, and notably, she beats Hemingway to the beach. Um, she goes with a bunch of doctors, and she carries a stretcher, and okay. they don't care. Like, the people on the beach do not care that she's a woman. They're like, you're going to carry a stretcher? Awesome, because there's 9,000 dead people here, and lots yeah, of like, other people who need medical assistance. Oh, you have two arms? Great, carry this Great. body. carry this body. Like, it doesn't matter. Ugh. But also, that visual of seeing Ugh. that yeah. as a reporter, 
If you're not there in a first... You're not there, you can't... You can't describe it, and you're not able to give an accurate telltale of what's going on to the people at home who have no... There's no television. There's no television. There's no... You know, it's not like instant tweets. And it's it's hard. (laughs) You don't know what's happening to your family. All those boys, the Bedford... What was it? The the Bedford boys, the Suicide Squad, yeah. I mean, no. You have no idea. no sense. Yeah. I've been on the beaches in Normandy, and... It's beautiful. It's like a vacation land. Mm. And it's so hard to picture 9,000 bodies, the ocean filled with, you know, red with blood. It's it's really hard to even picture. And so having the words of, like, highly qualified writers, writers. to to draw that picture for us yep. um, with their language is, is so important. So her account is published in Collier's Magazine, which is what she wrote for. And it was um, widely read and published, but her ex-husband Hemingway's work was more widely read and published. But a lot of people who read her account said that it was more colorful and more, um, more human. And I'm sure she, it has a level of empathy in the narrative oh that someone else can't deliver. She writes in her narrative just about the the self-sacrifice of the American boys, how um, there was this young French boy who sort of like got in the mix with them, and all the American soldiers are really worried about this little French boy. And she's like, dude, like you're missing a leg. Like, stop worrying about the little French kid. Like, he's fine. You know, like yeah. what about, you know, and, and she just, she's so, um, she paints a really great picture of how um, heroic our, the Americans were that raided yeah. these beaches. Um, so she, um, one of the things she said is all of us knew that our own wounded were good men and that with their amazing help and their self, uh, their selflessness and self-control, we will get through this. All right. Um, as a result of being on the beach, she was stripped of her accreditation and she was sent oh, to course. a nurse's camp for wanting to do her job like everybody else. <laughs> it's so weird. Thank you for doing your job. Now you're penalized. Yeah. Your, her only offense was that she was a woman doing her job. Not because she did her job. I can't. Um, She, so she sent back to England and to this, like, basically prison. And, of course, she escapes and flies to Italy. (laughs) Of course she does. (laughs) She's she's the stowaway in the bathroom on D-Day. Yeah. Uh, She covers the war from Italy and and whatnot from from the rest of the time. So uh, she uh, is the first Allied woman to be on the beach, and the next Allied woman to come won't come for 30 more days. So that's how long they waited to allow women onto the beaches. Yikes. Yeah. So, um, she's a really good example of ways that women are literally barred from, from telling the story in history, yeah. but yet she did it. And so, um, you know, if you're teaching about D-Day in class and you want to utilize some primary source material, maybe describe what the beaches are, let Martha do it for you. Read, yeah. like undo the sexism and read her account instead of Hemingway's account or any of the other journalists yep. who, who wrote. Um, maybe, you know, if you're going to show scenes from Saving Private Ryan, fine, but then have kids read Martha Gellhorn's, um, document and decide if Saving Private Ryan was historically accurate based on her firsthand account. Um, that, you know. I love that. Just some lesson ideas. Um, so 
Other women were also there, though. And I think that it's important to mention that even though Allied women weren't on the beaches, Americans often forget that wars happen in people's backyards. And so if you're invading... Well, because we don't have war here. You know, it's not like... The worst thing that happened on our land was probably, you know, the the Twin Towers. And then... Pearl um, Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Exactly. Like, those are major events that maybe that it's someone's backyard at all. Right. And... What, you know, okay, and not to like minimize those two tragedies, but there's countries that war happens daily in people's and backyards. that those types of figures are are um, small compared to what people are experiencing yeah. on a daily basis in terms of terrorism and other things. So, um, and of course, I just mentioned nine thousand people died in the first wave on of a vacation Egypt, spot in, in a vacation France. spot in France. So. Um, French women were, of course, there, and um, and especially keeping in mind that because um, the French military was defeated really relatively quickly by the Germans, um, there really aren't men in France, and um, so the bulk of the people that are in France throughout World War II are women, or they are elderly, or they are children, and um, there are very few men um, around. So. One of the best primary source accounts to D-Day is a woman named Marie-Louise Osmot, and she wrote a diary throughout World War II. Um, Her home is just a stone's throw from the Normandy beaches. I've been there. It's beautiful. And um, she, uh, when the Nazis took over France, they billeted at her house. So okay, she, so she has Nazi soldiers in her home. She's her writing home. a journal about it. Yeah. Like, Impressive. she's she's a really cool source. Um, she, one interesting thing to note is that she ends up having both the Nazis and the Allies living at her home. Because Allies have to do that too, right? Right. They have to set up base camps and they need to utilize what's available to them. Right, as so people's moving. homes that are local. Yeah. Right. So, um, one thing that she talks about in her journals is that the, so because, you know, Germans have now fought World War One and Two right. in relatively quick succession, um, there really aren't a lot of young men in the military. And so the average age of one of the guys who, one of the Germans who fought on D-Day is like 26 or 27 years old. Which in that time was older. That's older, considering the fact that the average American was 19. Wow. So, huge age gap. And then, if you think about, essentially, that decade between being a 19-year-old young man and a 27-year-old young man, yeah, maturity is going to be really different. And so, <laughs> I was actually really surprised, because I thought that she would say that the Germans were, you know... More evil, poised, you know, or whatever. Like pulled together. But she said, yeah, she said exactly that. They were, like, more poised, more gentlemanly than the, you know, ruffian Americans that were, <laughs> like, all riled up and coming through um, when they, after D-Day. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So she keeps, she keeps a diary. And two days before the D-Day landing, she wrote... Quiet, warm day, night by contrast, filled with the noise of six drunks staggering and bawling. And I wanted to be like, oh yeah, that's loud. But just wait for two days from now when (laughs) when D-Day happens. Oh no. So on June 6th, she writes uh, a much longer entry. Landing during the night, I'm awakened by a considerable rumbling of airplanes and by cannon fire. The noises in the garden and in the house, talking, loading ammunition, bozes, nailing. And you can just sort of see the like Like frantic even in her writing 
Um, well, you're you're giving a very good narrative of frantic. <laughs> I sound frantic. I like good. it though. You, okay. came, you came you came to win on that one. Oh, good. <laughs> I feel very anxious for you. <laughs> she says we're deafened by airplanes, which make never-ending round. Um, she goes on to explain how she had to feed her farm animals during the invasion. I think people forget about details like that, like. People still own. Well, yeah, farms. there was no grocery store. You yeah. have to milk your cow. You or you don't eat. Yeah, you like, go pick your strawberries. Um, like move on. One of her cows dies during the invasion. Oh, no. Like it's it's really sad. Um, she talks about how the Nazis are going nuts. Like they're just like running around. And yeah. I, obviously, I'm reading an English translation of her um, of her journal. Um, like crazy. We. <laughs> Um, she says at some point one of the Nazis on D-Day says the Tommies are here and he just disappears. And so there's like crazy battles going on and she's just sitting in her house. The Nazis are gone and she's just waiting for the English to come and she doesn't know what that that means, how aggressive they are. I can't even imagine where you feel safest, your home, that this is happening to you. Oh my gosh. She calls, she witnesses a horrifying airplane battle. Her windows are broken. Um, she says, you have the feeling that a runaway train is passing over your body. Oh, my gosh. Um, she also mentioned that, I think it's the next day, a French flag was rehung over the school by the Allied soldiers, and soldiers passed out chocolates, cigarettes, and other things that the French hadn't seen in years since oh. the occupation. Um... So she describes the many times during, you know, the battle goes on. I mean, people are, um, this is not like a one, it's not like D-Day, woohoo, we win. Like it's, we're talking weeks and months. It's going to take um, until almost, uh, the, until August um, to take Paris. So, wow. and, and Normandy is not that far. It's like a two hour drive from, from Paris. So, um, so she, you know, it's going to take a long time to win this region. And um, so she's, you know, her, her diary goes on and on and on to describe the, you know, the many times that she almost dies um, as battles are taking on, uh, taking wow. place all around her. Um, so she's just a really cool, cool resource. Yeah, I feel like that would be such a good narrative for students to read. A firsthand account of someone from that local country yeah. on a day when, you know, they have no say over what's happening in their land. Totally. Um, so the last little uh, anecdote that I want to share with everybody is that, um, you know, we all remember and we were taught that Franklin Roosevelt was doing his um, fireside chats with right. people. And Eleanor Roosevelt was also doing something very similar. Uh, she wrote a column throughout the war called My Day. And on June 7th, uh, the day after, she published a a column about D-Day. And uh, I'll just read an abridged version of it. She said, So at last we have come to D-Day, or rather the news of it has reached us over the radio in the early hours of the morning on June 6th. I have no sense of excitement whatsoever. It seems as though we have been waiting for uh, for this day for weeks and dreading it, and now all the motion is drained away. She goes, this is the beginning of a long, hard fight, a fight for ports where heavy materials of war must be landed, a fight for airfields in the countries which must we must operate. Day by day, miles of country must be taken, lost, and retaken. That is what we have to face, what the boys who are over there have been preparing for, and what must be done before the day of victory. That day is coming, surely. It will be a happy and glorious day. How can we hasten it? The best way in which we can help is by doing our jobs here better than ever before, no matter what the jobs may be. She signs it ER, which I think is really cute. Um, but 
I love that. Okay, we can listen to Franklin Roosevelt's. Yeah. And but like we also have the option to read Eleanor Roosevelt, who is in an equally important Absolutely. position First lady to motivate and inspire the, the American people. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here are just a few women that you could turn to to tell the story of D-Day, and it sort of decentralized masculinity, but still tells the story. Yeah. Um, and and we still learn the history of World War Two, but we also learn about how it impacted families and it impacted civilians. It's living a more in holistic France. view of the day versus just the event. Just the event. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So I hope that people can realize that we don't have to make heroes out of history, that we can include women in stories where they don't even exist, right? They're not really supposed to be there. Yeah. And um, it is possible to find their voices and include them. I love that. Thanks. All these were awesome. So we're going to have links to all this stuff on the website. All of this will be available, and we will have a lesson plan on D-Day specifically that people can download that's all female primary sources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you're welcome to you know include things if you're talking about the American Revolution. Talk about yep. Sybil. Talk about Murley when you're telling the story of Medgar Evers. Yeah, right? and civil rights and, and the civil rights. Um, and talk about how women played a really big role in in propagating these heroes. Up. Absolutely. Next time, in honor of the centennial of women's suffrage, we are going to do a deep dive. So I hope you will join us as we explore. Women's suffrage in depth in a way that it's probably not taught in the classroom, showing how women were on both sides of pretty much every issue related to the vote. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.